Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Nigel. Uh, there, there is a, an element of sadness about tonight. Uh, for anyone who is visiting, or if this is your uh, first time at Windsor, we as a church set out on an adventure at the beginning of 2011 to work our way right through the Bible in one year in order to attempt to trace the big story. And after eight months, we have reached the end of the Old Testament. And so there have been, I realize, a couple of times during Eastern Pentecost when we've sort of pressed pause and jumped forward into the the New Testament, but we've always come back and tried to pick up from where we've left off. But tonight is a sort of like key point. It's a bit of a milestone. Uh, Because after this evening, we're going to leave the Old Testament for the time being. And for me, that is sad. But just before we, uh, we enter the 400 years of apparent silence between the Old and New Testaments, and more about that next Sunday morning with Desi Maxwell, who's, who's actually going to come and speak about those 400 years. But before that, I'd like us to turn to, as Nigel says, the very last book in the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. It's page 960 in the Bibles, in the pews, and uh, I'd encourage you to to please turn to it. Now Malachi, along with two others, Haggai and Zechariah, Malachi is described as, or is known as, a post-exilic prophet. In other words, he spoke to the people of God and into their situation after the exile, after they had come back from years of captivity. But although many of the Israelites were back in a good place, physically speaking, I mean they were back in Jerusalem, spiritually speaking, they were miles away from where they should have been, as we're about to discover. Now in terms of the person Malachi the prophet, we know next to nothing about him. It's a bit like Habakkuk, who we were looking at this morning. Malachi's name doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. And any personal details like a father's name or a place of birth or an alternative occupation, all omitted. The one thing we do know is what his name means. And it says it there if if you have a copy of God's Word. His name means my messenger. And I suppose in... In lots of ways, that's about as much as we need to know. That he is, at this point in time, God's messenger. He's God's spokesperson. But the question is, why does God need another one? What is it that's going on in Jerusalem post-exile that requires God to speak again into that context? Well, what we need to know, and I'm just trying to sort of paint a bit of the background picture, what we need to know is that the temple has been rebuilt. That place and that important building that meant so much and symbolized so much to the people of God has been up again for about 50 plus years. But although sacrifices and worship were being offered there once more, All was not well 
by any stretch of the imagination. The people's relationship with God that should have been vibrant, it should have been vital, it should have been connected, turns out that that relationship was dysfunctional. It was shattered. It was broken. And Malachi, if you like, speaks into this tragic situation. Now, during the week, uh, this past week, I was intrigued by the opening of a new museum in Covent Garden in London. Did anyone uh, read anything about this or hear anything about this? A number of people nodding. The Museum of Broken Relationships. And it opened its doors on Monday past, and it's going to stay open until the 4th of September. And apparently it has come from Croatia and has been something of a global phenomenon since it was established eight years ago. And in this museum you will find objects that various people have donated. Things that have been given to represent broken relationships. And so there there are trivial things like a nasal spray. There are bizarre things like a brain scan photograph. And then there are very impressive things like a grand piano. And alongside each object is an explanation, a note that explains uh, exactly why the contributor has given this piece. And I must admit, as I was reading about it this week, I thought, it sounds fascinating. I would, I would love, and if you, if you happen to be over in London in the next uh, couple of weeks, I'd really encourage you to go along and see it, because I'd, I'd love to hear more about it. But as I read about that museum during the week, And prepared for this evening, I did wonder that if that exhibition had been around in Malachi's day, what would God have contributed to represent his broken relationship with the people? It's an an interesting thought. And as we go through the sort of first part of this sermon, you may want to consider some suggestions as to what God might have contributed. In terms of a note by way of explanation, I'm not even going to try to say that word again. In terms of a note by way of explanation, the book of Malachi does seem to be exactly that. And so much more. Now as you read Malachi, and it doesn't take long, four chapters, 55 verses, that's all. But as you read it, you soon discover that it's been written and presented in a very unique style. It is quite different from the rest of the prophetic writings. Very different, actually. It comes across as a kind of question and answer session between God and the people. And therefore, one way to engage with it, and this is just one way, I know, although it's been one way suggested by many people, but one way to engage with it and learn from it is to picture it or to imagine it as a kind of court case. Where God is initially in the dock, defending certain charges made against him that has led to the broken relationship. And then the tables turn. As Israel, if you like, steps into or is forced into the dock. And she is challenged. She is cross-examined about her role in the breakdown. And God is up first, and this is intriguing. Because what becomes apparent is that somehow the people blame God for the breakdown. 
You see, although they're back in Jerusalem, and again, this is just by way of painting some of the background. Although they're back in Jerusalem, nothing of any real significance or improvement is happening. Life is tough for the people. It's a real struggle. None of Haggai and Zechariah's promises of a new day have come to pass. The temple might have been rebuilt, yes, but Zechariah's reference, for example, to many peoples and powerful nations streaming to the temple to seek God, well, that hasn't happened. And as God begins to speak, as he begins to defend himself, if you like, he starts with a statement, a truth, a reality that they needed to hear and that we constantly need to remember and affirm and accept. And here's God's opening statement. I have loved you. And apparently the sense of the verb in Malachi 1-2 is this. I have loved you and still do. Past, present. But the people aren't buying it. And so quickly, and look at this in verse 2, immediately they come back at God with a question. Although, to be honest, it's more of a cynical sneer. How have you loved us? Where's the evidence of late? I mean, you might have loved the people of God in the past. You might have done some amazing stuff for a previous generation. But what about us? Life is hard. Life is ordinary. And so they question and they doubt the current love of God. And it still happens today, doesn't it? God has so loved the world and he continues to express that love and share it. But many doubt its reality. Many have become cynical about the love of God. Suspicious of it, dismissive of it. And whenever things aren't going as people like or want or expect, then there's an even greater tendency to query the love of God. Do you ever do that? As a friend of God, do you ever question God's love? The Israelites and Judah definitely did. But God affirms it, he restates it, he reminds the people of his commitment to them, of his faithfulness to their relationship with him. But you know, as with all relationships, it's got to be two-way. If any relationship's going to work, it's got to be two-way. And as people in relationship, people in, as we have discovered, covenant relationship, the Israelites were invited to trust God. To obey God. To love God. How? With all their heart, soul, strength and mind. But in what follows here, you discover that the people are doing anything but loving him. They are being anything but faithful. And as they, in a sense, then step into the dark, God raises a number of issues. He addresses certain things that has led to and is causing the breakdown of this relationship. And I just want to draw attention to three. Three charges that the Israelites have to face up to. And I want to try to make the connections. Because remember, as we said last Sunday morning, the prophets do speak from the perspective of eternity. And therefore, let's not distance ourselves from the words of the prophets. They do have something to say to us. 
to start with, this is a bit of a recurring one, their worship is a sham. If you were here last Sunday morning, there will be echoes of this. It was insincere. It was heartless. The priests, according to Malachi, were just going through the motions and therefore the people were following suit. It had become a tiresome duty, a burdensome job, an empty ritual. And so, for example, and you can read this, people were offering blind and diseased animals. And they were offering them as sacrifices. And that was not what was required. God asked the people to bring him their best. But instead, they brought the bare minimum, the dregs, the leftovers. Their worship cost very little. It meant very little. And it spoke volumes about the true condition of their hearts. And as I thought about that, I found it deeply challenging because in my worship, in what I bring, I've got to ask myself, is it the best? I mean, is it what God deserves in light of his incredible love for me? Or am I just kind of bringing the leftovers, the dregs of who I am? And what does my worship, my offering of worship, my sacrifice of praise, what does it reveal and say about the condition of my heart? What does it express about the state of my relationship with God? The people have decided that they're going to worship in their own terms. And that's always a nonsense. And as ever with false and insincere and cheap and careless worship, God reacts. And God responds. And in Malachi, God says, I'm not pleased. Verse 10 of the first chapter. And he goes on to confirm, I'm actually not going to receive your, I'm not going to accept your offerings of worship. Because what they were doing was showing contempt for God's name. And as we have discovered during this journey, and as we also know from the prayer that Jesus has taught us, a prayer that says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And because of the worship they were bringing, they were not honoring God's name. And God reacted. And God doesn't just comment on their worship. And he doesn't just say, I'm not going to accept it. He goes further. So, for example, chapter 2, verse 2, he says he's going to curse the priests. And it's even more extreme. Now, look at verse 3. And let me read it from the New Living Translation. I will splatter your faces with manure from your festival sacrifices. And I will throw you on the manure pile. Just a couple of comments. One, this is clearly serious. That God takes our worship seriously. And secondly, and I'm sure some of you have maybe gone here in your thinking. Given what we just said a few moments ago, how can these be the responses, the words of a loving God? How? And that's a good question. 
How do you process this? Well, and not everyone's going to find this satisfactory. But if God was to decide to accept our indifference as unimportant. In other words, if God was to turn a blind eye and just leave us as we are, just abandon us to simply get on with it in our own terms. Where is the love in that? God loves, you see, and cares for us too much to remain impassive and uninvolved. He will not let sin, which is when we choose to do things our own way, he will not let sin destroy us. And therefore he acts and he responds as he sees fit. Why? As an expression of his love, because he cares. And so their worship was insincere. And as a result, the relationship was breaking down. That can still happen. But secondly, they had lost sight of any real sense or understanding of right and wrong. Now again, you've got to understand, I'm, I'm trying to cover a whole book in, in one sort of 20-25 minute sermon, so I'm skimming here. But the law that had been given to them at Sinai was being trampled over, just ignored. And so they were treating their marriage vows casually. And they were marrying those who worshipped idols. And they were even saying, according to the last verse of chapter 2, that all who do evil are actually good in the eyes of the Lord. And God is pleased with them. I mean, they had completely lost perspective. And again, the challenge of this remains so relevant because we live in a world where right and wrong and God's laws are being dismissed and ignored and trivialized and diluted down and compromised. And yet the need to remain faithful to God's ways and God's values and God's framework for life is absolutely vital to a vibrant relationship. Because whenever our value system erodes then disobedience just becomes the norm. And therefore, the relationship fractures further. And the moral decline in Judah really was alarming. Have a look at chapter 3, because Malachi identifies the kind of behavior that was going on. And it meant that God was coming, according to verse 5, to judge. People were practicing sorcery. Now, these are the people of God this is addressed to. They were committing adultery. They were consistently lying. They were exploiting their employees. They were taking advantage of the most vulnerable groups in society. And they were depriving immigrants of justice. And what this actually revealed, all of these practices, what this really revealed was their underlying attitude towards God, according to verse 5. And here's what God says. They did not fear me. Because you see, if you'd fear God, you wouldn't behave like that. And whenever we as individuals and as a society lose respect and reverence for God, which is what it means to fear God, to have a proper respect and reverence, but whenever we lose that, then we begin to tolerate anything and everything. And God's people in Jerusalem had lost that. And therefore, blatant disobedience was rife. 
And my prayer is that we would guard against losing a proper fear of God. And the final area that was creating tension and relational breakdown, as the Israelites in a sense stand in the dock, is this. It's their appalling lack of generosity. It's clear they had money, but they were choosing to keep it to themselves. They had become selfish and had totally forgotten where or who the money had come from in the first place. And so what does God do? God actually accuses them of robbing him. And again, the people won't accept this charge. And so they come back at God, verse 8, and they say, How do we rob you, God? Prove it. And so God does. As he explains to them how they're hoarding virtually all their money and neglecting to give anything back by ways of tithes and offerings. And again, it is such an important issue for us because the need to constantly remember that everything we have comes from God and belongs to God. And the need to hold lightly to what we have and to give generously are again essential to a vibrant relationship. And so as you come to the end of this book and the end of the Old Testament, there is a real sense of sadness because it's clear that despite all that God has done for his people over numerous years, despite his consistent and constant love, the people have made choices to wreck the relationship, to walk away. God has been faithful, but time and time again the people have become increasingly faithless. And the evidence presented here at this stage of the story is overwhelming. Your insincere worship, your blatant disobedience, even your willingness to stay from God. And if you need any more evidence regarding their attitude to God and his love, surely... Chapter 3, verse 14, that phrase says everything. Here's what they were saying. It is futile to serve God. In other words, what's the point? I mean, their arrogance is shocking here. And it revealed that they had clearly given up on this relationship. And therefore, in a sense, as the jury sits, it's obvious whose fault The breakdown is. And even though there were deeply disturbing consequences and implications, that judgment is coming, that a dreadful day of reckoning lies ahead. And God, in his consistent and constant love, has warned them about this and has warned his people about this time and time again. But even though that's true, they don't want to listen. And they don't want to take God seriously. And so at one level... It all appears hopeless. And so in a sense, there is a very real potential that this is a tragic end to what was a great story. And yet, it's not the full story. (laughs) Because there are hints of hope here. And just as I finish before I hand back to Nigel, I do want to mention three hints of hope that we find at the end of this book. Look at verse 7 of chapter 3, where God says, Return to me, and I will return to you. Do you know, God was willing to accept them back. 
And I, I find this incredible. Given their unfaithfulness. God was still willing to accept them back. Forgiveness was offered. His patience is phenomenal. The relationship doesn't have to end. Restoration is possible. You return to God and a new day begins is what God says. Return to me and I'll return to you. It's your choice. And that reality still stands. And another hint of hope lies in the discovery that although it seems as you read through Malachi that everybody has made this choice to wreck the relationship, it turns out that's not the case. Not everyone has walked. Not everyone has spurned the relationship with God. Not everyone is faithless. There are those, according to verse 16 of chapter 3, who still feared the Lord. Who still honoured his name. Who still served God. A faithful few. And here's what God says regarding them. They will be mine. And they are my treasured possession. And I will spare them. And again, that reality still applies. That those who fear and honor and serve God, they are his treasured possession. And their long-term eternal future is secure. And the final hint of hope and this one is highly significant because it becomes obvious that the story is not over by a long way you see despite their rebellion God isn't finished with his people he clearly longs for more to be restored to a right relationship and so he promises in chapter 4 verse 5 to send the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes now exactly what that means Or who exactly is being referred to here, given that the actual original prophet Elijah left years ago? Well, all will be revealed in time. But for now, what it does mean is that God hasn't given up on his people. Hasn't given up on the relationship. The story isn't over. There is a next chapter. There is a new day. And we will enter it in the weeks to come.